Balancing Point podcast. This is episode 40. Welcome to Balancing Point podcast, where you will experience the captivating world of professional ballet. On this show, you will hear what it takes to make it in the exclusive world. Each guest will share with you their struggles, their I've made it moments, and their advice for success. And ultimately, you will learn what it is really like to live your dream. Join your host, Kimberly Falker, and today's inspiring guests as they take you on a behind-the-scenes journey into ballet. Hello, and welcome to Balancing Point Podcast. Today, I continue with my series on women in choreography, and I'm so excited to present to you today's guest, Helen Pickett who's not only a brilliant choreographer, and you really should check out my show notes page to find out more about her and see some of her works, but she also is such a profound woman in so many aspects. I left the interview feeling blessed to have shared an hour chatting with her and filled with so many amazing words of wisdom and advice, and I'm sure that you're going to enjoy her two-part interview as much as I did. So let's jump right in with part one of my interview with Helen Pickett. When you'll catch us right in the middle of our pre-show discussion. Now, we had talked about the weather in both New York and Minnesota, and then we segued into discussing the pros and the cons of sending a dancer away at a young age to a year-round trainee program. So you'll kind of catch us right in the middle of the beginning of the discussion, and then we'll keep moving forward and learn a lot more about Helen and her journey in choreography and dance. I'm sure it is. It sounds like a great, um, a great project and also another beautiful way of getting ballet out there. Now, so, yeah, I'm excited. So, yeah, so, doing this. <laughs> well, it's been, a, you know, it's, it comes from a, a personal selfish place of just trying to navigate this world that I'm so unfamiliar with. And, you know, I think it says it on my um, yeah, it does. website, yeah. but yeah, it's kind of like it comes from a place of confusion last year when it's always been a bit of a cocoon to let my daughter just be in the her home studio and learn from great teachers and go to the next level and keep on moving that way. And then all of a sudden when the world of auditions and intensives opened up it's like oh gosh now what you know and then you start hearing of year-round programs and trainee programs and all the above and it's hard to navigate now what do you do (laughs) she's only eighth grade you don't just quit school yet no you you don't no but then the more I interview the more you hear that people have made some really remarkably daring choices well let me tell you um and I appreciate it to this day, what my parents decided. I appreciate it because of what, of the foundation it gave me. Um, when I was 14, uh, we actually moved up to San Francisco. My mother had gotten, a, she'd gotten accepted to dental school up there. And so um, we moved up there. I auditioned for San Francisco Ballet. And then, of course, in a place like that, kids are going away at 13, 14, 15. My parents wouldn't let me go away the first summer. They made me go back down to San Diego, which is where we were from, and do uh, a ballet intensive down there. And guess what? It was excellent. It was at this place called Ballet Society. And this woman, Jackie Hepner, who used to be with City Ballet, brought in amazing teachers. And I got to be at home. 
Uh, the following year, they let me go away. Um, and I was old enough, so I was 16. But, you know, they never, you know, I was in San Francisco Ballet School. So it was a, it was a good school. Yes, I was there. But the fact that I stayed home until I was 18 and didn't go away, um, you know, you can find out if she's getting good training. Um, and before you, you know, and I don't, it doesn't sound like you're like this, but before you, it's not even following the herd. It's you trying to do the best thing for your daughter. But before you go on and say, okay, you can go away for the year. Um, you know, I don't care what age we're in kids benefit from being in their families and maybe 17, Maybe at that age, but you know, I remember myself at seven. I was still very young. Some people are more mature. I was still very young at 17. You know, I, I left home at 19 and I moved to Europe. That was my job. So that's also young, but it was a job. But it was a job, right? You know, well, I mean, I'm going to, I think I'm, you know, just going to speak to this in this first section um, because I, I, I found it, uh, it, sp it spurred something on in me. You know, I already said I grew up in San Diego, and at 14, 15, I moved to San Francisco. Um, but, um, and I did train in both places, San Francisco Ballet in San Francisco, and then a little, a series of studios in San Diego. Um, but I liked the question, when did you decide to, to make it a focus? And that was, you know, I, I, when I do teach, I teach a, a workshop called Choreographic Essentials. And when I do teach... I always um, mention the idea of first choice, best choice. It goes along with, you know, a lot of the improvisation, the Forsyth improvisation that I teach. But so I let this, you know, I practice it myself. And I, I think it was at 14 when my father, just before we moved, so 13, 13, you know, I I was really I was questioning. I was questioning like any young teenager. I like oh, I was starting to like boys and and um, you know, point shoes were hurting and uh I didn't really enjoy the atmosphere. I was in too much. And my father you know, so wise cuz they had both been artists, my parents, actors. Oh, really? Yeah. And my father's a writer, and my mom had also studied um, opera singing. They met in New York, and and then in San Diego, they started doing other things. My father still wrote, but my mom went on to the sciences. But my father sat me down and said, you know, Helen, choose to do, I will be there for you. But let's talk about this, and because I also thought I wanted to be a doctor. So... <laughs> You sound like my daughter. Yeah, really, yeah. So <laughs> yeah, she's like, she said, "I want to do so much." <laughs> I'll go to bat. That's a good thing. I always promote that. Um, I said, you know, I I I want to dance, but I you know I just don't want to spend so many hours in the studio. It was up to five days a week that I was practicing. You know, at thirteen, and it was after school, and then there was homework, and you know, I was in accelerated classes, and it was all becoming a little bit too much. Right. And he asked me. He said, you know, first of all, he asked me and I wasn't sure. And then he said, I've got a plan. Stay in ballet for six months. If you want to quit after those six months, but really give it your all. And if you want to quit after those six months, you can. 
And I don't know how he knew this, but that's what I needed. I needed to stick with it for another period of time. And I got over that hump of not wanting to do it. And thank God, because I don't know truly. I am a person. I, I don't know what I'd do without dance. I've never, you know, I attempted to cut it out of my life when I retired and I decided to be an actor. That's why I moved to New York. And, and I enjoyed where I was working. But there was this constant, you know, and I'm, I'm a pretty positive person. Um, and there was this constant cloud and I couldn't shake it. I didn't know what was wrong, but I was unhappy. And the minute I got back in the studio... I could breathe again, basically. I'm not being dramatic. That's really how it was. And my dad, since he was a writer, you know, I grew up <laughs> with uh, bedtime stories that were Richard Kipling and, and William Shakespeare sonnets. You know, these were the things that, you know, my mom would also read some, and my dad, some things. But these are the things I remember. And when I was seven, we had to write a little poetry book. It seems to be the thing, seven or eight, that 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 you know second grade that seems to be the thing that a lot of my little goddaughter's doing it now and and he introduced me to Robert Frost and we had to recite a poem and um we I did the two roads and it's funny it came up immediately just the line i remember from from this poem and it says everything about what i profess and teach and put forward as a coach when I'm a choreographer now. Two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. And for some reason, this stuck. And I didn't even know it then how much it stuck, but I think it's because my father was always talking about the successful work harder. It is not, this is another thing my dad always said, and I say it now, it's amazing. 99% work, 1% talent. Right. <laughs> and, and, and he gave me all of these examples of these people that had exhibited this behavior. 99% work, 1% talent. Then, you know, years later, I'm reading Malcolm Gladwell, and it's the 10,000 hours that you have to put in to be an expert. And then before I read that book, Outliers, it's a wonderful book. Before I read that book, I found the quote from Louis Pasteur, success favors the prepared mind. And all of these things. Then I, I was talking to a woman on the train on uh, Amtrak and you know she was in some kind of higher education. She gave me her card and there was the quote on her card and that started us oh talking. Goodness. Yeah, so you know, it's the hundred monkey theory. You know, people you start advocating for a certain kind of um um uh inspiration you know to give back and all of a sudden you find it popping up all over the place it is you know it it comes to you and um i don't know i just wanted to speak to that that was important for me um because uh i believe it and i not just believe it i've practiced it <laughs> right it's true you know and and i've had those not in dance but i've had those experiences in life with exactly that where you really start seeing it, you know, and it, it helps guide you to confirm that your decisions are right when you start seeing it over and over, you know. Yeah, and perhaps, you know, not, it's, you know, because it, it's in every profession, 
where people strive. But the whole idea of good, bad, right, wrong, you know, I try to, when I do my choreographic essentials workshop, I try to strip that away because basically it is always fear that is stopping us in our tracks. And how do we start, uh, you know, chinking away at that fear? How do we start doing that? Well, one of the reasons, is, one, of, one of the ways is to say, you know, yes to the situation before you say no. So all of these physical manifestations of how we say no, you know, grimacing before you start, right. the little laugh when you make a mistake, all of these things uh, fold into the world of no and fear. And so I stop them in their tracks and I say, well, don't start laughing. I want you to walk off and come back on. And even if you're feeling that nervousness and fear inside, you're not going to show us. Because human beings believe what they're shown, and they believe what they're told. So I'm also a great believer in semantics. You have to manifest your life and say what, what will be happening because other people believe it and you believe it. You start believing your own words, and you can spin negative or spin positive. And, you know, the profession we grew up in, and, as I said, other professions where we strive, for some reason, we learn that the no and the correction has more value than, than the yes. And I'm not saying value either, but I'm saying, well, let's start with just making them equal. Right. <laughs> and don't start, don't hang on to the no. Just don't hang on. Okay, you got a correction. Work on it. The way we sabotage so we can hang on to the no is that we stop working on it. Whenever I hear a kid say, oh, I've heard that before, I smile, I make a joke about it, and I was like, if you've heard it three times, you better start working on it. So it's also <laughs> teaching kids how to be proactive and not just to be, you know, wallowing in their own self-sabotage because we all right, do it. Stymied by that issue. <laughs> yeah. And we find ways to stay feeling bad. And that's when the sabotage, oh, excuse, right? <laughs> that's when the sabotage of the human being starts. So, I mean, let's just, I guess we could lead right into, because it goes and you can edit this the way you want. But um, if, we're, if we're in this section anyhow, if I could go back in time and ask my, thir or tell my 13 year old self, um, I would say, and this is a big one because I see it a lot in children. Uh, sorry, they're all children to me at this age. Um, but, you know, the 18, and 18 to 23 year olds, the college age kids that I teach in this choreographic essentials class, um, I find there's always a good handful that have, either have no one that has faith in them or they have only one person and they don't think it's enough. So I say, listen to the people that have faith in you, not the voices that say no. Even if there's one person, and it might be a family member, it might be a grandma. You know, I always discounted, you know, the family members. But, you know, I didn't really, and not, not subconsciously. Their, their support was a foundation. And then if you feel no one is saying yes, you can actually find a person that will say yes. Because they're out there. And searching for the yes from others is also searching for the yes in you. Because you're saying, I'm worth it. And I've seen little beings go out there and it, it brings me, it's so much courage. But I see them do this. 
you know, and, you know, I would say also, you know, with the wisdom now, and especially in, in the speed in which we work today, again, success favors the prepared mind. Don't, well, let me say it this way, fulfill the process. Don't skip steps. It really is more enjoyable, and you actually reach far higher in your goals when you go through the process. You become an artist more quickly and not just a good student executing what you're supposed to execute. I'm not taking anything away from the good execution, you know, from someone perhaps that's gotten there faster. But I'm saying the person that actually goes through the process is developing their art form and not just, you know, being, and I hate this term, the quote unquote good, good girl or good boy. You know, cast good and aside and go for excellent, beautiful, and courageous. Those other three words will never serve you. They never will. Finally, I guess the quote that, you know, I ha I'm filled with quotes. I'm constantly like, oh, right, yeah. But today, <laughs> today it's T.S. Eliot, and it's um, only those who will risk going too far can possibly find out how far they will go. So that's another thing I speak to. If you don't risk anything, again, if you stay the good girl or good boy, you'll, you know, you might you'll be exactly what you were. <laughs> exactly. I mean, that's, that's, the, that's the one thing, and I've said this before to my children, you know, the one thing you will guarantee is you won't, make any progress if you don't try to make progress you know well yeah and guess what there are going to be people out there that commend you being a good girl and good boy and those are not the people that you want to get the yes from mm -hmm. that's true I'd rather have a bit more of a struggle and have someone saying do it again do it again do it again right now this is all looking back but this you know that was part of that set of questions well I think that that is part of my goal with this podcast is to provide wisdom from a perspective of experience right. to the kids that are right in the throes of it right now because you know I can preach it all I want but it won't resonate the same as somebody that actually is living it and working it and having gone through all the all the different phases of it and then with that wisdom they're offering you know something that they will that, one dancer might hear your words and it might make all the difference and a, another dancer might hear a different guest's words, you know, and so I think it takes, it takes a village to raise these that's kids. That's right, that's right. And, you know, I, that's, that's part of being a choreographer, part of the, what I love being a choreographer and then, you know, less frequently but also as a teacher um, is I think part of the, of being, of getting to all of getting to all these uh, dancers in front of you is you have to, as a teacher, as a choreographer, as a coach, you have to find a way that it's going to hit each person because you might be professing and professing and you have a group of 10 people that are lost and it's not their fault, it's your fault. So, you know, I always go back to that. You know, how, how did I not get this person? Well, I have to do my homework. If I'm lucky enough to see that person again, and I have to go in with a new tactic. Tactic. 
especially when I'm choreographing because the end result is I want to see more of that person emerge in my work because that's the way the audience is going to connect. We connect to human beings. We connect to people that are going through what we have gone through. That is how, that's one of my goals as a choreographer, to, you know, to constantly break that fourth wall, to uh, quote unquote pull in, in a different way, not just with eyes or emotions, but I work very often with something called proprioception. And proprioception is a sense, it's how we are, it's a sense of ourselves in space. And the skin is one of our greatest listening tools. So I believe that proprioception can transcend space. I believe it can actually hit us. And I've actually, I feel like I've seen it happen. And, and I know I felt it. So if I can feel it, I know others can. Now, is that a, like a scientific or what, what's that term come from? Proprioception is a sense. It's, it's one of our senses. Okay. Learn something new every day. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's what it's about. Yeah, and dancers have a very keen sense of proprioception. Yeah. The greatest number of our proprioceptors are in the palms of our hands and the soles of our feet. So when we talk about in ballet the ends of our lines, the ends of our limbs, um, if we don't feel that or understand us rub our hands together or pinch the ends of our fingers, you're actually making your brain go to those places more so you can actually have a feeling of what that is. Um, so I employ that a lot. You know, it's, it's a wonderful tool also with partnering. And, um, yeah, that's, that's something I, I, I work with a lot. I work with that and the idea of yes a lot. I think it sounds like you give amazing classes. I think it'd be a, a gift to be able to give your instruction to kids because, I, yeah, I think that you really would make a difference in how they perceive their future. Yeah, and then some people hate it. <laughs> well... <laughs> Well, maybe because you're striking a nerve, you know. Well, I think the only way that you would dislike it. And the funny thing is, I, you know, I'm pretty transparent when I'm a choreographer and a teacher. I say, this is going to get some of you where you don't want to be gotten. And yeah. Because that would be the only way that, that it would feel uncomfortable is if it's exactly what you know to be true and you don't want to know it. You exactly. Know? That's how human beings are. Yeah, yeah. That's a defense mechanism, that's for sure. <laughs> So yeah, going you know going back to your kind of journey from dance into choreography. So after you graduated high school, what was your next steps? Well, um, <clears throat> the last year of my high school, the San Francisco Ballet implemented the San Francisco Ballet High School back in the day. It only lasted three years, but I was the first graduating class, so that enabled us in the higher levels to actually back also in my day. Um, in San Francisco Ballet School, Richard Kamak and Zola Deshawn ran the school. And the company, I was under two directors, first Michael Smuin and Helgi Tomasen, um, used this, the school dancers, um, I don't know what's going on now, they might still do, is they use the, the school dancers. And I was lucky enough at about 15, when I entered the school, that I got picked for what I call the animal parts. I was the chicken in Fima Garde. I was the hound in um, 
I was I was a hound. I was a simian in Beauty and the Beast. I was a hound in uh, I can't recall it right now. Sorry, but you know that got me on stage, and we were paid. You know, nominal. Oh, wow. We were paid. Yeah. So Still, it was fun yeah. getting a little paycheck, and then you know the company got to know a few of us, so we continued being picked for big corps de ballet pieces. So I got a lot of wonderful time on stage as a student with San Francisco, when I was in San Francisco Ballet School. And um, so I repeated actually level eight, the highest level twice, because the second year they were very, they were really, they let me stay. You know, the second year I was auditioning. So um, I did, you know, the auditions that I wanted to do. And, um, and I, it was all near misses. I was the last one for Houston Ballet. I was the last one for Elliot Feld. I went to American Ballet Theater when Misha was the director. I stayed for two weeks and took classes. It was wonderful. So generous of them. And, um, you know, I was told he was interested, but I needed to work on a few things that happened to be my arms. And that's a big thing what I concentrate on now, back and arms in students. And and I thought, okay, great, because that's the that's the company I want to dance with. I'll go away, I'll work in that, and I'll come back. And in that time, William Forsyth came to San Francisco Ballet to make a new ballet called New Sleep. And I was at the time I was working with the company, and I was doing Western Symphony and Stars and Stripes, and uh, still taking my school classes and. I started watching. So you were still in high school? No, no. This was the year after high school. Okay. Yeah. I graduated, and then the year after, I was still looking for a job. But when you said school classes, you meant the ballet school? Yeah. Okay, yeah. go ahead. So in that time, when I was 19, I, you know, I discovered William Forsyth, and, you know, it's... It, it, there are no fairy tales. I watched and I watched and I watched and then this is Bill Forsyth. He asked me to come in and try some things. He said, you know, I've been watching the whole time. Come in and try. So I got in the studio and I started trying things and I realized by watching this person work, I'd never seen anything like it. He was having fun in the studio. He was asking dancers opinions. He was asking them to contribute, and I thought, wow, this is where I want to dance. So at the end of the process, and I wasn't in the piece, you know, it wasn't a fairy tale thing, I actually went up to him and asked him if I could audition for his company. Wow. I asked him. So, you know, again, it's having the courage to swallow all your fear and just do it. And he said, and it was very wise, if you come to Frankfurt and audition, I'll consider. So, you know, he he needed he was saying to me, you need to take that step. Said, yeah, you need to go through the right process. That's right. That's right. So I did. Six months later, uh, at Christmas, I went there, saved my money. I was working in a cafe. I saved my money because my mom was in school, remember. And, you know, there wasn't extra money. There was, I was not, I did not grow up with a silver spoon and I don't, I think it's wonderful kids that do, but I didn't. I was working in a cafe, 
for three years. Well, besides which, that shows where your true heart and energy, because if it's handed to you, it doesn't mean as much. Well, you know, it can. I, I'm, not, I'm not that person. It can mean a tremendous amount to people that also have a very, uh, you know, fortunate uh, life. Where my, where my friends in lay was I had two parents did pr try to provide me everything that I wanted, you know, um, and mostly the support. But so I went over and auditioned and he gave me the contract and, you know, I signed the contract at 19 and uh, I went over there and that became nearly 12 years of my life. Wow. And um, so how big was the company? Did you know, was it at the smallest? It was 36 at the biggest. It was 42. So it was a decent size. Oh, yeah. A nice mid-sized company. Yeah. And uh, it was. It was an amazing, informative, uh, ha habit-breaking, <laughs> uh, transcendent, inspiring, knuckle-grinding, teeth-grinding experience. It was the whole package. It was an amazing journey it was something it set up my life basically wow so the other dancers were they primarily German or were they from all, all over, over the, the world? world all over the world there were quite a few Americans Billy's an American he's from Long Island um, and uh, there are quite a few Americans but really all over the world another thing that's uh, that I need to speak to which is very important our company was over a third african-american and for a ballet company um, that's quite extraordinary. That's impressive, yeah. And, you know, I moved back to New York, and I thought that's the way it was. Right. And it's not. Huh. So after the 12 years, what was um, kind of the, what was your next steps, or what happened? Well, um, I had been, when I was 20, a wonderful theater group called the Wooster, Wooster Group uh, came to Frankfurt, and, I, uh, and a group of us went, including Bill, and it, it's physical theater, and I thought, wow, that's what I want to do when I finish dancing. I was like your daughter. I had a lot of it. Right. Um, I had a band when I was in Frankfurt. I was the producer oh, and lead singer of a band. We had gigs. Um, I guess you do have, like, the, the genetics for some of that stuff, like the singing, huh? <laughs> well, no. Okay. No? Perhaps, <laughs> but the message is, I'm not saying that I did all these great things. The message is... When I wanted to try something, I tried it. I love that. And the funny thing is, when you make a decision, doors usually open up. It's true. I, I mean, I, I'm a 100% believer in that. And if you looked at my life's resume, you'd see that too. Yeah. <laughs> I had a great example with my mother yeah. who had multiple careers. And I always admired the fact that if she decided something, she'd go for it and then figure out the details later. Yeah. You know? Both my parents were that way too. Yeah. Very courageous people, and and you know I see I see that, um, I see that foundation in myself. Yeah. Um, you know, and I'm not saying you know there's still how to overwrite it. You do it anyhow. Well, sure. Some things work out, and some things don't. That's the bottom line. It's not that everything works out. But right. Exactly. Afraid of it not working out. If it doesn't work out, we'll try something else. That's just the bottom mm -hmm. line. Right. Um, 
so yeah so i saw this group and then uh i blew my knee, right knee out for the second time and i had reconstructive surgery and uh i was 30 and i thought i love this profession but i think i need to think about what i'm going to do and and at that time this group came back they'd been coming back over the years and once again i went up to them and asked them if they needed someone and um that started that journey wow so where did that lead you well that then then i moved to new york it's a group based okay. in new york and so that i did that for solely that for 3 years and I did dance in the piece, and not it's not that dance was out of my life. I did there was some dancing in the piece. Um, and then it was the mother of Francesca Harper, actually, the woman I told you about. Um, Denise Jefferson, she was the director for years at the Ailey School. Uh, another pioneering, absolutely inspiring, incredible woman. Um, she gave me my first chance at teaching. And when I got into the studio, I never wanted to teach. And when I got in the studio, I was so happy. I, 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 you know, and then it dawned on me. I always liked teaching the roles in Frankfurt, you know, so why wouldn't I like this, you know? <laughs> and then, um, you know, I made a few solos, but I wasn't, you know, I, I knew I had to have dance and I was trying to figure out how that would be. What would I be doing with dance in my life? And what else would I be doing? You know, what, what would this, how would, how would my life be forming? You know, so that was, you know, those years after being a professional dancer, um, most of us have to ask the, I think all of us have to ask these questions because you're so devoted to something for so long. It is that thing for all those years. And then you have to reinvent. And thanks again for joining me today on Bouncing Point Podcast. Be sure to tune in again for part two of my interview with Helen. And in the meantime, be sure to stop by my website at bouncingpoint.com. That's P-O-I-N-T-E dot com to see more about Helen and her works. And until then, have a great day.